knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we started our study through the book of Colossians and we noted that the theme that is really throughout the whole book uh, is the uh, supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And the main purpose of this letter was to combat errors in the Colossian church and to show that you know they have everything that they need in Jesus Christ. And this letter deals with Three main things. It deals with doctrine. It deals with danger. It deals with duty. And all three of these things really point back to the theme, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And in chapter one, the doctrine of Jesus's supremacy and sufficiency, it's declared in three, uh, six different ways. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at the first way that it is declared, and that is in the gospel. And so in uh, verses three through 12, Paul's going to be focusing on four different things that show Jesus's supremacy and sufficiency in the gospel. First, how the gospel came to the Colossian believers. Second, how they responded to the gospel. Third, the impact the gospel had upon them. And then fourth, Paul is going to pray a prayer in light of their reception of the gospel, in light of what the gospel has done in their life. And all of these things are going to bring us back to the supremacy supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus within the gospel message. And so let's start by looking at what Paul shares with us here about how the gospel came to the believers there uh, in Colossian. Uh, and we're going to look at verses three through eight to start with. It says this, we give thanks to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Last week we noted that Paul introduces himself, but he also introduces Timothy, who is with him. And now he speaks of um, we, referring to he and Timothy. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And so Paul reveals to these Colossian believers, hey, Timothy and I, we do two things regularly for you guys because of you guys. We give thanks to God for you, and we're also praying always 
for you as well. And I want you to note in verses 4 through 8, Paul gives three reasons why. Why is it we're so thankful for you guys? Why is it that we're always praying for you? Well, there's three things that have happened that Paul really is led to uh, be in this thankful, prayerful place when it came to the Colossian believers. And the first reason I want us to look at is because of how the gospel came to those believers. It brought Paul to a place of being thankful and prayerful. And notice what we're told here, starting in the middle of verse 5, which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now, before we look at how the gospel came to the believers in Colossians, I want you to note how Paul describes the gospel. He brings up an important word in connection to it. Notice what he calls it. He calls it the word of the truth of the gospel, the grace of God in truth. Now remember, one of the main reasons that Paul is writing this letter is to deal with heresies, to deal with false teachings that have come into the church there in Colossae, and he wants them to recognize there is a true gospel. The one that initially came to you is the true gospel, opposed to the false one that you have now started to adopt and accept. Because as we're going to see as we get into chapter 2, one of the problems there that happened in Colossae was that they were adding things to the message of the gospel. It was Jesus plus these other things ultimately save you. Jesus alone is not sufficient according to the false teaching that was coming in. And so Paul wants to first throw this contrast out there. When I'm speaking of the gospel, I'm speaking of the true gospel, the one that initially came to you, the one that's been going throughout the whole world, not this recent thing that you've bought into by the lies of people who are bringing in false messages to the church. But notice how this gospel comes to the Colossian believers. I want you to note three important words that we see in verses 5 through 7. The first word is heard, which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The second word is come, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. And the third word is learned as you learned from Epaphras. So the gospel came to those in Colossae. They heard it. They learned it. Why? Because a faithful servant of Jesus Christ by the name of Epaphras was willing to take it to Colossae and proclaim it to the people who were there. And notice that Paul says in verse 6, the gospel has come to you as it also has in all the world. You see, the way that the gospel came to those believers or to those people in the, the city of Colossae is the same way that it came to all the other cities, all the other towns in the world at that time. People like Epaphras, people like Paul, they went from place to place proclaiming the good news of the gospel. It went and it came through people who shared it. And that is the way the gospel comes to people today as well. Something very important to understand is that God has chosen 
to use believers as the mechanism in which he gets the gospel out. That's his main way of proclaiming the good news. He says, I have called those who put their trust in me to be the ones that I've given the responsibility to go out and proclaim this good news message. Now in Romans chapter 10, we're told why this is so important. Notice what we're told in Romans 10, starting in verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of priests who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul starts out here with a wonderful statement. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that's just a wonderful truth, a wonderful reality. Anyone, no matter what background, no matter how much sin is in their life, if they will call on the name of the Lord Jesus, place their faith in Him, God will save them from their sins. But with this wonderful news, Paul brings a problem. How then shall they call on Him in whom they've not believed? Hey, people aren't going to call on the name of Jesus if they've never believed in him to begin with. And how still they believe in him who they've not heard? Well, how are they going to believe in Jesus if they've never heard about him? They never heard of who he is and what he's done. And how shall they hear without a preacher? How are people going to hear unless someone who knows the message is willing to go and proclaim it to them? And how shall they preach unless they are sent. How are these preachers going to go unless we as a church prepare them and send them out to a world that is lost and in need? And he finishes with, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul says, you know what? You and I, we have beautiful feet when our feet take us to people for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. When that's what our feet are being used for, to go from place to place for presenting the gospel, how beautiful our feet now become. You know, Paul uses the same kind of concept in Ephesians chapter 6, but in Ephesians chapter 6, he's dealing with the spiritual armor that we need to be putting on every day to fight the spiritual battle. And notice one of the pieces of armor that we're supposed to put on daily. Ephesians 6.15 says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. One of the things that we should be prepared to do each and every day is proclaim the gospel. We should be ready for that. Our feet should be shod. We should be ready to walk throughout life, ready to share the good news with people who haven't heard it yet. William Barclay wrote this, The gospel is humanly transmitted. It was Epaphras who brought it to the Colossians, There must be a human channel through which the gospel can come to men. And this is where we come in. The possession of the good news of the gospel involves the obligation to share it. That which is divinely given must be humanly passed on. Jesus Christ needs us to be the hands and feet and lips which will bring his gospel to those who have never heard it. So Epaphras, he's that man. He's the one that God uses to take the gospel to the the believers there uh, in Colossae. And notice what Paul has to say about this man, Epaphras, in verses 7 and 8. He says this, 
as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Paul had some great words for uh, Epaphras, and because he's a man who went out and he shared the gospel, he says, you know what, he's our dear fellow servant, and he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. You know, what a wonderful thing to have said of you. It wouldn't be great if someone says, you know what, you are a faithful servant. You're a minister of Jesus Christ on behalf of him towards others. I hope that all of us as believers, that would be something we'd want to be known for, that when people referred to us or spoke about us, they saw us as servants of Christ. But you know what, even better than people saying that about us, The most important person that we would want to hear that from is the day that we stand before Jesus, that he would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, that we truly are serving him in this life so that when we stand before him after we die, we can hear those wonderful words from him. But you know what? One of the ways that we are faithful ministers, there's many different ways that we can be a faithful minister of Christ, but one way is to be faithful to preach the gospel to people that God brings into our life. You know, this was the final command of Jesus before he left this earth. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to him, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know, I think we need to understand that Jesus brings many things to us that are commands, not suggestions. And I think we often take what Jesus says as a suggestion. Like, you know, it'd be nice if you were to do this, but if you're too busy or you've got too much going on or if it's too difficult or whatever it is, then, then don't worry about it. You don't need to do it anymore. You don't need to love people or, or you don't need to preach the gospel. But, but that's never what the command is. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you're not too busy. It's I am commanding you, and if I truly am the Lord of your life, obey me. Do what it is that I've told you to do. So the first reason that Paul and Timothy give thanks and always pray for the Colossian believers is because how the gospel came through Epaphras to the Colossians. The second reason is because of how the Colossians responded. So the gospel goes to them But now Paul is going to reveal three different ways in which they responded to the gospel, which are wonderful, wonderful responses. Verses 4 through 5 tell us those responses. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So there's three ways that the Colossian believers here respond to the gospel. First, they put their faith in Jesus. Second, they demonstrate love for all of the saints. And third, they had hope in the gospel, which is laid up for them in heaven. You know, when the gospel's presented to someone... When they first hear the bad news that they are sinners and the consequence of their sin is the judgment of God and the ultimate judgment of God is an eternity in hell suffering His judgment. And then they hear the good news. But God sent His only Son to pay for our sin, to take our sin and the judgment of God upon Himself. And He sacrificed Himself on the cross for us. And if we put our faith in Him and what He's done, then we can be forgiven. That he died for us and three days later rose from the dead. And if we'll trust in him, we can have forgiveness 
of our sins. When people put their faith in Jesus, then what God has done for them actually impacts them. But until they put their faith in Jesus, it's just something that God has done that enables them to be saved, but yet they're not yet. They're only saved the day that they put their faith in Jesus until they make that choice to respond with trusting who Jesus is and what he has done, then what he has done has not impacted them yet. It has not saved them yet. And so when you hear the good news, if you're not willing to respond with putting your faith in Jesus, then the good news has not been good for you yet. Because yeah, the message true, but it hasn't done anything to save you because you aren't willing to put your faith in it. Something very important to understand about faith is that faith is only as good as that which you put your faith in. So if I were to go outside and I were to cut down a tree and I were to carve it into the shape of, say, a bird, and then I were to dip it in gold, and then I were to place it you know, on the mantle in my house and every day come down and, and worship it and bow down to it and, and place my faith in this thing that I have created, my faith is worthless. Because this piece of wood that's dipped in gold can do nothing for me. It is worthless, and therefore the faith that I'm placing in it is worthless as well. You know, there are a lot of people who say, I'm someone of great faith. But the reality is, everybody has faith in something. The important question is, what is it that you're putting your faith in? Because that's what determines whether your faith is something that's good and powerful and effective, or something that is worthless and useless. If you put your faith in yourself, well, guess what? Your faith has all the same weaknesses and failures that you do. If you put your faith in a great concept, then that's all your faith is, a concept. If you put your faith in a religious system, it is only good as the religious system is. If you put your faith in the living Christ, the all-powerful God, creator of heaven and earth, then your faith is living. Your faith is powerful. Why? Because it's in someone who's living and who is powerful. You see, the reason the Colossians' faith and our faith is great is not because we have such great faith. No, we have faith in someone who is so great, which is why the faith now becomes great. Theodore Epp wrote this. Almost everyone talks about faith because almost everyone has faith in something. But faith is only as good as its object. It is important to recognize that we are not saved from condemnation by having faith in faith. Paul commended the Colossians for their faith in Christ Jesus. So it's not sufficient to tell a person, just believe. The question is, believe what? The message of the gospel is not to believe in yourself, in church, or in doctrine, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having faith in Jesus Christ implies we have placed our confidence entirely in his finished work on the cross, recognizing that he forgives our sin and gives us eternal life. The first thing that the Colossians do in response to hearing the good news of the gospel is they place their faith in Jesus. And that wonderful response is something that caused Paul, something that caused Timothy to be thankful and to be prayerful for them. The second thing the Colossians did in response to hearing the gospel is at the end of verse 4, and your love for all the saints. You know, this is a really a byproduct of the first. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, 
all of a sudden now you go from being outside of the family of God, from not having a relationship with God, to now you do have a relationship with God. He is your father. He has adopted you as his child. And guess what? Everyone else who has put their faith in him as well is now your brother and sister in Christ. And so you're a part of this family of God. And so a natural byproduct of entering into this family is that you would now have a love for other believers who are part of that family. It's something that you should see in your own life if you've accepted Christ. You should see in others who are claiming that they've accepted Christ. There should be a love for the body of Christ because we all share the same Father. We all have the same entrance of faith in Jesus Christ. And this is something that God greatly desires of us. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, you know what? Those of you who trust me, I'm giving you a new commandment. I'm not just telling you to love people in the way that you think you should. I'm telling you to love people like I love. I want you to demonstrate that kind of love, demonstrate my love towards people. And you know what? The world will know you are my disciple by the way in which you love other followers of Jesus. When you're loving other believers the way that Jesus loves them, Jesus says that's the way the world's going to know that you are a disciple of Jesus. And this is something that's very important for the church to be demonstrating to the world this love that we have for one another. Charles Spurgeon said this about how we should love other believers. The true believer loves the persecuted, the misrepresented, uh, and despised people of God for Christ's sake. He loves them all, even though he may think some of them to be mistaken in minor matters. He has love to the babies in grace, as well as to the grown saints, and love even to those saints whose infirmities are more manifest than their virtues. He loves them not for their station or for their natural amiability, but because Jesus loves them and because they love Jesus. So the second thing the Colossians do in response to the gospel is that they have a love for other believers. They have a love for the saints. And that, once again, just encouraged Paul, encouraged Timothy. They were so thankful for that reality The third thing that Paul says they do in response to hearing the gospel is in verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. When the Colossians heard the gospel message, it brought hope in that message. Hope in the gospel. The Greek word translated hope means a confident expectation of coming good. Hope. That confident expectation of coming good is only as strong as the likelihood of what you place your hope in actually happening. I'm sure many of you have seen on the news recently, I saw on Friday, that the mega millions, which now could be said the mega billions jackpot because it went to $1.6 billion. And when it reached that, everyone and their mother's going out to buy a ticket, hoping that, hey, I'll win $1.6 billion in this mega 
millions lottery. But you know what? I saw the article and they gave the statistics of the likelihood of winning the $1.6 billion if you buy one ticket. And the likelihood is one in 302 million. So the likelihood is extremely unlikely. The the odds are horrible for you, but there are many people hoping to win $1.6 billion, but that hope is weak. Why? Because the the reality of that happening is weak. It's very unlikely that's ever going to come to pass. And so your hope, your confidence in something coming is only as good as that which you're placing your hope in. Now, something else I think is important is that the Colossians here are placing their hope not only in the gospel, but the promises of God that are connected with the gospel. And so you hear the good news of the gospel, but there are many promises of God for you and me that are connected to that message that we bring, that brings hope into our life. We're placing hope, and I'll give you some examples in the promise of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, why can we have that cleansing? Why can we have that forgiveness? Because of the Gospel. Because Jesus took care of that on the cross, and now we can have our sins forgiven if we will come and confess them and repent of them and accept Him into our life. That is one of the wonderful promises that we are given because of the Gospel. Another promise is one of the most uh, memorized verses there are. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life in heaven. This is wonderful. If we will place our faith in Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, we are promised that we will not perish in hell, but instead we will be blessed with the ability to go and spend eternity with God in heaven. So the Colossians placed their hope in the gospel and the promises of God that come with it. And because of that, their hope is strong. Why? Because God is. God always is faithful to do what He says He will do. And so if you have hope in the promise of God, your hope is strong because you can be confident God will come through. God will do what He says. If God says He'll forgive my sins if I put my trust in Jesus and ask Him to, I can have hope and confidence that that's going to happen. If God says I'm going to go to heaven because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I can have that confident hope that one day when I die or when He comes back for me, that is where I'm going to spend my eternity. It's not like, you know, buying that lottery ticket where I think it's no way it's likely to happen, but I sure hope it does. No, I can be confident that this is going to happen because of the God that I'm placing my hope in. Now, notice something else. Paul not only says what their hope is in, but he also says where it is presently in verse 5 because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The Greek word here translated laid up means to put something away for safekeeping, to store away in a place for preservation. And so notice where their hope is being stored, where it's being kept safe. It's being kept safe, Paul says, there in 
heaven. And I love that because, you know, there's so many things trying to rob and steal and take the hope we have. And Paul's saying, you know what, your hope is secure. It's laid up in heaven. And what you put your hope in is secure. And so the truth that you are forgiven of your sins, you know what, that is true and that's not going to change. The truth that you are going to heaven if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's not going to be taken from you. That is something that's secure and it's laid up in heaven for you. This is something that you don't have to worry about losing something that can't be taken. This is something that you can be confident in, and this is something that should be encouraging for us. So the first thing the Colossians did in response to hearing the gospel is they placed their faith in Jesus. The second thing is they demonstrate love to the saints, and the third thing is they have their hope in the gospel and the promises that go with that. And all these three things are are essential responses to the gospel. They, they really go together. You know, obviously the initial one is that faith, but the byproduct of that should be love and hope for what's happening. You see, faith rests on the past work of Jesus for us. Love demonstrates the present work of Jesus through us. And hope looks toward the future promise of Jesus for us. So the first reason that Paul and Timothy give thanks always and pray for the Colossian believers is because of how the gospel came to them. The second reason is because of how they responded in these three different ways. And the third reason is because of the impact the gospel made on them and the world around them, which is seen in verse 6. Which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul says the impact the gospel is having on you, but not just you, on the whole world that is accepting this message, on everyone who receives it, the gospel is doing the same thing. What is it doing? It is bringing forth fruit. When this Bible speaks about bringing forth fruit or or bearing fruit, it's speaking about the way in which we live our lives, that the gospel has an impact on our life. It changes the way in which we live. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 7, 16-20. It says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So Jesus, when he's speaking about bearing fruit, he's speaking about the way in which you live. And he's saying, you know what? You can actually know if someone actually is a follower of Jesus by the fruit, by the way in which they live their life. Someone can claim that with their words, but their life can demonstrate, no, they're not bearing any fruit that would make me believe they actually do have a relationship with Jesus. See, you know, before we accepted Christ, all we did was bear bad fruit. We were very sinful people. We just bore the sinful bad fruit that, you know, the world bears. And then we come into a relationship with Jesus. We accept the gospel message. And all of a sudden, we start to change. And we go from bearing bad fruit to bearing good fruit. And the Bible tells us what that looks like. Well, what is good fruit? I mean, what are we talking about here? Galatians 5 22 and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such there is no law. This is the kind of fruit the Colossians were bearing. This is the the impact the gospel makes upon a life. It brings us to a place where we bear spiritual fruit. We start having love and joy and peace and kindness and long-suffering. And all these things start to be evident in the way in which we speak, in the way in which we live, in the way in which we conduct ourselves among others. William Barclay said this, The gospel is productive. It bears fruit and increases. It is the plain fact of history and experience that the gospel has power to change individual men and the society in which men live. It can change the sinner into a good man and can slowly take the selfishness and the cruelty out of a society so that all men may have the chance God would wish them to have. The gospel does this amazing transformative work In us, once you place your faith in what Jesus has done, he doesn't leave you like you used to be. He now changes you because now the Spirit of God dwells in you and moves in you to make you more like him. So Paul starts by sharing with us these three reasons why he and Timothy were so thankful for the Colossians, prayed regularly for the Colossians, first because of how the gospel came to them through Epaphras, second because of how they responded to the gospel in those three great ways, and third, the impact the gospel had on them, that it made them bear spiritual fruit. And I want you to know that all three of these reasons point to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. You know, the reason that Epaphras shared the gospel with the Colossians is because of Jesus' supremacy in his life. Jesus, I'm willing to do what you want. I'm willing to be your ambassador. I'm willing to be your, your mouthpiece. Why? Because you are supreme in my life. And so I will go to Colossae and I will proclaim this message to them. And the reason the, the gospel message had such an impact on the Colossians because of the sufficiency of Jesus. The message is sufficient to save. It is sufficient to change lives. Jesus is completely sufficient. You don't need more than him. It's not Jesus plus these other things that save. It's him alone. And so we see within just the Colossians and how the gospel came and how they responded and what the God did through it, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is the supreme God and sufficient Savior. So that's how the gospel came, how they received it, the impact. And now Paul is going to share with us in light of that, in light of what God has done in the Colossian believers through the gospel, I pray for you guys. I'm thankful I pray, but you know what? I want you to know what I pray. And so he tells us three specific things that he prays for them in verses 9 through 12. Notice what he says. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Paul says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. For this reason, what reason? The reason we just looked at. 
Because of these three things, how the gospel came, how you responded, how it impacted you. Hey, that brings us to a place of prayer. And let me tell you the three main things I pray for you. And this is a wonderful prayer for us to be praying for ourselves and for others. Because once you accept the gospel, these three things that Paul addresses here are the essential things for a Christian. Once you have now become saved, now you desperately need the three things that Paul is going to focus on in his prayer. The first thing that Paul prays is in verse 9. It says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first thing, if you want to sum it up, of what Paul is praying for the Colossian believers is now that you have accepted Christ, you need to know God's will. That's one of the most essential things that, you know, once we go from that place of lost to found, darkness to light, I need to now know what is God's will. That's so important for believers. And so Paul, notice the specifics of his prayer. First, he said that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The Greek word here translated fill means to make full, to fill to the top, to cause to abound and supply liberally. This had the idea of a complete filling. So Paul's prayer to the Colossians is that they would be completely filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now I want to pause for a moment and I want you to note something here. There are many words that Paul could have chosen translated knowledge in the English language that he used. And I want you to note this word knowledge that he uses because as I shared last week, One of the main heresies that came into the Colossian church came from the Gnostics. Gnosticism was a big issue, and the Gnostics claimed that they have a superior knowledge. And one of the things they were teaching is, you know what? You don't need to be redeemed from your sin. You need to be redeemed from your ignorance. Your real problem is a lack of knowledge, not the fact that you're sinful people. And if you will just get the superior knowledge that we have, everything will be great. That's what you really need. And so that was being pushed on these believers, that what you really need is this superior knowledge. And I love what Paul does as he gives this Greek word for knowledge. It's one that Paul uses of an exact, precise, or full knowledge of something. This speaks of the greatest knowledge possible. I love that because as he's praying here, he's saying, you know what? I want you to have the greatest knowledge possible in what? The will of God. Oh, you don't need some superior knowledge that the Gnostics are claiming that you have. No, you need the greatest knowledge possible about God's will for you. That's what you should be focused on. And Paul recognizes that's what they need. And notice how Paul wants them to know God's will. He says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know, there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is just an an intellectual understanding of something, but wisdom is the right use or application of that knowledge. For example, you could know intellectually that a porcupine has lots of little needles, and if you go and touch it, it'll shoot out at you, and that would not be good for you. Wisdom says, don't touch it. 
You know, so you can have all the knowledge in the world. You know, I mean, you have little kids, you realize they're full of knowledge. You tell them things, but yet they don't have the wisdom to actually put it into practice the way that they should, and they get themselves in trouble. And unfortunately, as we get older, we do the same thing as well. So there's a difference between an intellectual understanding versus really grasping the wisdom of how do I put that into practice in life. And so Paul's not just praying, I want you to have an intellectual understanding of God's will. He's saying, I want it to go beyond that. I want you to have the wisdom to take God's will and actually put it into practice in your life. And so the first thing that Paul prays is that the believers would know God's will. The second thing he prays is in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the second thing that Paul prays is for the Colossian believers to live out God's will. First, I want you to know it, but second, I want you to live it out. I don't just want it to be in your head. I want it to be demonstrated through your life. And so Paul says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. When the Bible speaks of walking, it's not speaking of exercise. It's speaking of the way in which we live our lives. And Paul also says bearing fruit in every good work. And as we already noted earlier, bearing fruit also speaks about the way in which we live our lives. And so Paul's prayer is that the way in which you live would be in such a way that it would be worthy of the Lord, that it would be fully pleasing him in every good work. What a great prayer to pray. And hopefully this is something that we would want, that the way in which we live would be worthy of the Lord, would be something that fully pleases Him in every good work. And I hope that's our desire. I hope it's like, I want to do what pleases Jesus. That's my desire. I want everything I say, everything I do to be well-pleasing in His sight. And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, not only do I want you to understand the will of God, I want you then to be able to, to live so that what you live pleases the Lord. The third thing he prays is in verse 11 and 12. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. The third thing that Paul prays, notice the first is know God's will, Second, live God's will. But sometimes we're left with, man, how is that even possible? Well, the third thing Paul prays is that they would be empowered by God to do as well. You know, that's where it can be frustrating if we think, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know I want to live it out, but yet I don't have the power in myself to accomplish it. And the answer is, yes, you don't. But the power is there from God. In your own strength, in your own ability, can you do God's will? No. But through God's strength and God's ability, can you? Absolutely. And Paul understood that. In order to live God's will, you need God's power. And so that's why he prays that they would be strengthened with all might according to what? His glorious power. Strengthen them. Give them might, not according to their own. Don't just make them personally stronger in themselves. No, the strength that comes from the Lord and His glorious power. Paul prays that strength and power would be given so that they could have all patience and long-suffering with joy. The Greek word translated patience means steadfastness, consistency, endurance, 
The Greek word translated long-suffering means to bear something for a long time. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you realize that when you're doing the will of God, it's not always easy sailing. It's not always something that's enjoyable in some regards. There's always times where God brings people and situations in your life that are difficult, that are hard, and it's part of his will. I mean, look at Paul's life. It was part of his God's will to send Paul and to reach people with the gospel. We look at, oh, how great it must have been to plant those churches and to see people get saved. But we don't often think about, well, yeah, look at all the persecution that was also part of God's will as he sent him out and said, you know what? Yeah, you're going to reach these people, but in the process, you're going to be in prison and you're going to be beaten and there's going to be all these difficulties that come and you're going to have people who want to kill you and you're going to have to be able to deal with them and you're going to need patience and long-suffering in order to do it. And so as he prays that they would have the power of God, it's the power of God as you're doing his will that would give you patience with those people, long-suffering with those people and circumstances. And notice he adds at the end there, with joy. Not that just we would endure it with this horrible attitude and be like, yeah, I'm suffering for Christ and I hate everybody and this is so horrible, but I'm going to keep pushing on that we would do it with joy. That there would be that reality as I go through this, that God strengthens me to be patient and long-suffering and it would have the joyfulness come out of my life. But not only joy, another thing we struggle when we're in those situations with those people and those circumstances that are hard is we're not very thankful. And that's why Paul goes on to say, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. We need to be thankful we get to be partakers of God's will, that we get to be able to do this in this life. Be grateful for that, even when it brings persecution, even when it brings difficulty, even when it brings those people in our life that are hard to deal with, that not only do we have joy, but that we're also actually thankful that we get to be a part of what God is doing, even when it's not always easy. So Paul prays three main things for the Colossian believers. First, that they would know God's will with the wisdom to apply it. Second, that they would live out God's will in a way that's worthy of Him, in a way that fully pleases Him. And third, that they would be empowered by God to do His will with joy and with thanksgiving. You know, this is a wonderful prayer, a wonderful prayer. If you want to pray something for me, this is a a prayer I would love for you to pray for me. It's a great prayer to pray for yourself. But I also want you to realize this prayer, once again, points to Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. Since Jesus is supreme, we need to know his will for our lives and actually live it out. And since Jesus is sufficient, we can be confident that he can give us what we need to actually do it. So in these verses, we have seen the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus declared in the gospel. It's declared in how it came to the Colossians through Epaphras. It's declared in how they received it with faith, with love, with hope. It's declared in how the gospel impacted them by enabling them to bear fruit. And it's declared in how Paul prayed for them in light of what the gospel had done and what he wants to continue to see God do in their life. Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency is at the heart of the gospel message and what it does to transform people's lives. And this is something that we need to just remember because we're called 
to go and proclaim this good message, but realize, man, this is the message that Jesus truly is supreme. He is the creator. He is the God who sacrificed himself. And that message is sufficient to change people's lives, to save them. As Paul said, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God unto salvation. I realize it's the one message that can save people. I'm not ashamed of that because the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus backs it and it changes lives. And we need to realize as we look at the world, they're in desperate need of the gospel message. And we're the ones that God has given the responsibility to get out there and proclaim it. You know, Epaphras, we don't really know much about him beyond this. When we look at Paul and we think, man, we could never be like the Apostle Paul. Here's just a, a guy who hears the gospel, goes back to his hometown, and just shares it. And because of him, a church is started. Because of him, people get saved. We, we, he's not an apostle. He's not some ordained guy. We don't see any like Bible college or seminary. He's just a person who heard the gospel, received it for himself, and was willing to pass that message on to others. And God greatly used him, just like he wants to use each and every one of us as well.